Welcome back for the eighth and final episode of A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, a podcast by ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. I'm your host, Jason Crow, and I'm joined by Steve Pearson, the president of ICER. And today, in our final episode of the series, we're going to talk about how we, as physicians, as healthcare providers, as the ones often writing these prescriptions, what we can be doing to help fix the problem of drug pricing for our patients. All right, Steve, welcome back. This is our final episode. Ah, what a long and winding trail it's been. Good to talk to you again, Jason. Good, good to talk to you. We've made it. Um, so to our audience in this series, we've tried to lay out the problems related to high overpriced drugs. Namely, they can harm those patients paying for them, but more broadly, that overpriced drugs really poison the well for all of us. They harm all of us, albeit in less obvious ways. We've talked about the trade-offs that patients, our society, and our government make when we spend on overpriced drugs. We talked about drug makers, distributors, pharmacy benefit managers, and how drug prices are a spider's web, extraordinarily complex. And most recently, we've introduced a better way to address this problem, namely that we should price the value, the idea that the price for a drug should align with the clinical benefits it offers to individual patients, but also to society. And when this happens, we, we know that this can improve access to drugs for our patients and still encourage future innovation. So I hope you're asking yourself today, what can I do for my patients? How can I help fix this problem? And today, as we conclude, we'll talk about things we can be doing now to lead the change. So we want to encourage you as a fellow physician to, let's hear it one last time, to respond to the code blue. Physicians are in a unique position to address the problem. We have the knowledge, we have the responsibility to act for our patients, and we can make a difference. So this is what we do in every other situation. We seek to help our patients, and here is one more opportunity. So first, let's think about others outside of the U.S. and how they're doing to avoid or fix these problems. Steve, we both live here in Boston. My wife loves the Italian restaurants in the North End. I've got a favorite Thai restaurant over in Cambridge. We just had it last night. Do our international neighbors have drug pricing figured out too? Is there something we could learn from them when it comes to this problem? Oh, I think not a single one of them feel like they've got it figured out um, because there's no way to have a perfect kind of a balance, if you will, between kind of the, the incentives that, you know, everybody wants for innovation um, because drugs are a fantastic area in which we're getting new treatments and new approaches to, to really help patients, but to balance that with affordability, both in the short and the long term. So nobody feels like they've got it right. One of the most important things, though, that I think we can learn from them is that they have the ability to talk more honestly about the tensions involved. They can look each other in the eye and they can have health ministers stand up in front of a crowd and say, look folks, we all know that at the end of the day, we don't have unlimited resources and so we have to talk about some of the tougher decisions we're going to make around how to price and afford certain treatments. They also, I guess, and this is maybe a distinction with America that some people will think is a good thing and some people will think is a problem, but they don't assume that a system in which you give a patent to a drug maker and basically say you get to go price this as you will for years until there's competition, that that system will lead to a price that everybody can afford. Um, and they say, nope, we, we like patents because that really does incentivize innovation and we want them to have rich incentives, but we basically can't give them carte blanche. So there are different approaches, but they all, all European at least, and including, but also kind of other countries like Canada, Japan, Australia, and many others 
what they do is basically one of three things, or they do three things together. One is they actually think, hey, let's look at the evidence on drugs after they're approved, basically. At the time they're approved by the FDA, the FDA equivalent, we're going to have to look at that evidence and decide how much added benefit there is for patients. Two, we're actually going to negotiate the price based on what we think of that added benefit. If it's a great added benefit, we're going to say you get a great price. If it's a teeny little benefit or if it's a me too drug, then you're really not. And the third thing is they're willing to have the courage of their convictions. And if push comes to shove, they're going to be willing to say, look, you drug maker, you are setting this price. It's way above the price that it actually costs you to make this drug. And so if you're not willing to come in with a reasonable price, then we are going to say no. And that no happens pretty infrequently, but it happens enough so that it creates a system with a little bit more checks and balances, if you will, over the prices. And groups use cost effectiveness, some of them very explicitly, like the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, in England. It uses cost effectiveness and it has a threshold approach, much like we've talked about on earlier podcasts here. Um, and remember that that serves two functions. It does say that some drugs need to have a price within a range that might be lower than what the drug maker would propose, but it also gives us kind of a, a good housekeeping seal of approval to a high price when the drug is a good drug. And in some senses, that forces the health system to say, okay, we'll take that drug on and we'll make sure it's accessible to everybody at that higher price because it's worth it. So that's just one of the approaches. Other countries handle the kind of evaluation of the drugs or the use of cost effectiveness differently, but ultimately they all look at the evidence, negotiate, and basically have an explicit governmentally accountable process for saying we can't pay any price uh, at all times. You know, this is obviously a growing problem, but it's not new per se. I mean, we've been struggling with this for many years. So why hasn't our federal government found a way to lower prices for individual patients or fix this problem? And as a follow-up, is more government the solution to the problem in the first place? Oh, now you're taking us into dangerous territory. <laughs> I'm not a psychiatrist for the U.S. government or society, um, but I am, I guess, like other people, a, a kind of a witness of, of history and a student of it to a certain extent. But let's be honest, the United States as a culture doesn't trust government the same way that Sweden does. Um, we just don't. We have more uh, dis-ease with government taking over functions that could be left to, uh, quote-unquote, the market. So that's always going to be a tension in our system. Plus, we're saddled, if you will, some people would say blessed, by a, um, you know, a healthcare system of um, thousands of different payers using different formularies um, that patients can move back and forth from or be forced to move back and forth from that creates uh, both competition but also chaos to some extent. So there are lots of reasons that it's been hard. And more concretely, there are political factors in which um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, like any other industry, uh, lobbies for its interests in Washington and has been very successful in blocking competition um, in some sense, but also uh, in blocking any kind of federal governmental approach to negotiation. Now, uh, we're going to try to keep these podcasts a little bit evergreen themselves, but in the short term, I can mention that there has been some legislative activity 
oriented towards Medicare negotiating, but so far it really hasn't gone anywhere. All right, so let's suppose it's 2024 and Steve, you've just been elected president of the United States and you're trying to figure out how to fix this problem. What, what could be done? What would be necessary to fix the drug pricing problem like in terms of agencies or policies? What would have to be in play? Well, I'll be way too old to be president in four years. Um, <laughs> just start with that. Um, and uh, God forbid that that... Uh, that anyway, so uh, these podcasts are ending in an interesting place. But I will say that the American experience suggests to me that we're not going to have a cut-and-paste approach like the Europeans. Um, we learn from other people. Um, sometimes we're last to the party. But we always do it in a different way. Sometimes we're first to the party. Um, and so what I think we are kind of slowly marching towards is, is, is some change. And I think it's largely going to be driven by the very wonderful problem we have that drugs continue to innovate and to create great new treatments. And some of them are going to be one-time treatments. And if we want to kind of continue that ecosystem, we are going to have to figure out how to pay for it. Now, how much we're going to pay for it and how we scale the prices is obviously, that's where the details uh, will create um, friends and enemies amongst different people. But if, I, if we go back to that basic concept of what the Europeans and other countries do, do and, and I could have pointed out that we are really the only developed country that doesn't do something like this, it's having some governmental process where the evidence is looked at evidence on clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness, where that evidence is used in some kind of negotiation. By negotiation, that can mean anything from just setting a ceiling price that you can't go beyond and everything else is open to the market, or it can be some band of pricing that's kind of viewed as the ceiling. Um, it, can, it can be lots of different things. Um, and meanwhile, we can do more to, I think, accelerate competition um, that will help the up-and-coming uh, drug companies that have the new better drug um, overcome some of the patent barriers uh, that might keep them out of competition, that might overcome some of the rebate and pharmacy benefit manager issues. So we could have action on a lot of different fronts, but ultimately I, I do think we are heading one way or another because the costs need to be managed in order to keep Medicare and other state systems afloat, much less the commercial system. I think we're heading towards some general approach in which evidence is going to be used more vigorously um, to set some kind of boundaries around pricing, particularly for new drugs that lack competition. We've tried to explain this problem from several, several different angles, but for most of us, we're not running for president, not like you, Steve. We don't work for pharmacy benefit managers. Um, you know, doctors have a variety of career paths. Some are out in the community seeing patients primarily. Some are primarily researchers or involved in quality improvement at academic medical centers. Some of our listeners may out there be trainees or medical students. So what can we do as a professional community at a hospital level or a community level to, to lead change here? I would start with one verb, which is witness. I guess it's a noun too, right? We can be a witness, we can witness. Because when we witness what happens to our patients, when their insurer makes it basically impossible for them to jump through the hoops to get the drug, and it's, it feels pretty obvious that this is 
not really so much about the evidence and a lot more about the hassle factor that will drive down utilization. When we witness that, we see it and we can speak about it. We can, we can verbalize it. We can write op-eds about it. We can work with our societies to address it um, through different kinds of policy statements, etc. And that witnessing can be broadened, I do think, and this is something that more and more doctors are doing, but the witnessing can include the, the toxicity that occurs to our patients because of the drug pricing and other prices in the system. Um, this witnessing function can, can, can kind of highlight for, for people um, what is really happening to our patients when the prices that they have to pay out of pocket force them to make those kinds of hard trade-offs that we've talked about so often. And, and doctors at, in, their, in their societies and at the higher level can, can look at that trade-off again at the state and at the federal level and say, we are, we are part of the stewardship of this healthcare system for our patients. And if we as doctors can take a voice and start pointing out where we see problems, we don't have to always have the perfect answer, but we can be the witnesses to make sure that the system wakes up and doesn't assume that everything is okay um, and that real people, you know, if you will, um, on the bottom, which is really the top, it should be the top, but real people are getting hurt. So that's what I would say. We start. And we start again by witnessing, by, and that means talking. Talking, writing, getting involved, talking to people at the hospital level. You know, are there committees at the hospital that make choices about the drugs that are being used? Do they ever talk about how they might have a voice in drug pricing um, and what patients have to pay out of pocket? Um, and similarly, at the professional society, organizational level, there are lots of opportunities for older doctors, for younger doctors. This is something that really involves all of us. Yeah, and then, then lastly, to um, bring it home even more, you know, for the patient that I'm seeing tomorrow morning in clinic at 8 o'clock, what can I say or do differently in clinic to help him or her? What, what can I be doing on an individual patient level? Well, if you take that witness concept, I think, and you play it out in your practice, it can't be a part of every single doctor's visit that you have them write an essay on whether you know, the patient is having trouble affording their drugs. But it's, it's part of the broader sensitivity to caring for the patient to, to keep that in mind and to create an atmosphere in which they can feel comfortable raising questions with you. And that can either be something very personal between you and your patient or it can be, again, something that's easy to find in the waiting room or suggested by um, an assistant that, there, that there's a place to go with concerns and that you want to hear about them and how they're managing the costs as well as the clinical kind of you know, toxicities or whatever. Um, we, we can talk to them about how they're managing the financial aspects of their care. So by doing that, I think we show great concern um, for the individual patient, but we might even in some sense, again, through witnessing their experience, and by making sure that they know that they're part of a larger problem, that we might even help our patients feel that they have a voice, a greater voice, and that they can take action as well. And that it's not just with drugs, it's with other aspects that are not fair when it's not fairly priced in the healthcare system that real harm happens. So I think that we have tremendous power as, as individual clinicians to do work at multiple levels. Um, and there's nothing to stop us except uh, except our own kind of sense that we might not, you know, figure it all out, but that's not a reason not to start. 
Outstanding. Well, I think I think we've made it uh, relatively unscathed to the end of our of our series. Steve, I can't thank you enough for your insights and your expertise in helping us all, especially myself, um, understand these issues and how we can work on them, help, helping us understand these things a little bit better. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Jason. You're a great moderator, and I know in your own work how much you care about these issues and your patients. Um, so I look forward to further conversations with you over a glass of wine, maybe instead of a podcast. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Well, thanks again. Thank you.